to another episode of Out from the Cube. We are still recording uh, with guests uh, from the DevUp conference that is in St. Charles, Missouri, right outside St. Louis. Uh, yesterday, we recorded with Richard Campbell, who was the opening keynote, and we were fortunate to have him on. Again, uh, I'd go back and listen to that episode. Uh, it was very valuable for me. Uh, I am on episode 41, 42, 43 of our podcast, and Richard had just recorded like episode 1500. And so he's been doing this much longer and has much more reach and impact than we have had. But uh, it was, uh, I really appreciate the time that he spent with us and because uh, he gets pulled a number of different directions. But uh, came in to day two of the conference today and somebody that I'm very close with and have known for a number of years that listens to the podcast and knows the direction and kind of the message and the vision of our podcast immediately came up to me and said, hey, George, you need to do whatever you can to get the closing keynote on your podcast as well. And so I hunted down Dean Furness. And I'll, uh, to be honest with you, this morning, prior to 8.30 a.m., I did not know who Dean Furness is and, and now have spent, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes visiting with him about our podcast. And there's, uh, uh, without question, some uh, similar passions of life. And so I'm very much looking forward to this. And with that, Dean, welcome to Out From The Cube. And I'm I couldn't be more excited uh, in just 10 or 15 minutes talking with you offline before we pressed record about the n how the next hour is going to impact me. I, I'm going to be, I say this on my podcast, I'm very selfish with certain things. This podcast is very selfish. I want to learn, I want to meet people, and I want to take what I learn and then ultimately uh, distribute it out to the people that listen to the podcast. So. I think I'm going to get a lot out of this next episode. Well, it, yeah, so I'm and, super and, excited about and it. Thanks for having me because I think the fact that you are selfish is what makes it good, right? Because if you would want to listen to it, then yeah, you know, surely you've got an audience of one, right? Yeah, I've got <laughs> right? an audience so, of one. Uh, but no, glad to glad to be here. Pretty excited. Um, uh, th this conference is one that I hold pretty special, just from knowing many of the folks that have, have put it on in the past and have spoken at it um, in previous years many times. Uh, it's just always good to get back to, to St. Charles in the area. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. I again really appreciate. I think it's going to be a great hour. This rarely. So we're on episode 42. I've listened to maybe three of the podcasts. I don't <laughs> like listening to myself. Um, there have just been a, a number of guests that we've had, and I take a lot of notes as people that listen to the podcast know. And I know this will be something that I will circle back to and make sure I get everything written down and don't miss anything that you have to say. Um, but. Uh, you know, the, the first thing that we have in common is we kind of got to know each other a little bit is um, my background is really in coaching. I spent 15 years or so coaching small college basketball at some NAIA uh, type schools up in Michigan. And you immediately smiled when I kind of said that and because your background, not that it's your background, but you have a similar passion and interest and uh, time spent in coaching as well, right? Yeah, so this fall will be my sixth or seventh year of coaching um, our high school girls varsity basketball team. Mm. Um, I was asked to join the team uh, for my head coach uh, you know, about six years ago, and that's coming in off of having just a strong background in athletics as it is. Right. And I just can't wait. November 6th cannot get here quick enough for us to start practice and start another year. We have um, a small school or a public school. Um, it's a class 1A school in Iowa, and that essentially means that K through 12 is in one building. Um, okay, there are 40 to 45 kids per grade, not classroom, but per grade. And so that means our team, freshman through senior, ends up being 
you know, 13, 14, 15, maybe up to 18 kids hmm. total. And so we have a very personal relationship with every one of the kids. Uh, there isn't a defined, you're a freshman, you don't get to play varsity or anything like that. If you have the talent, you're playing. Hmm. Um, maybe not talent, but athleticism and, and attitude and work ethic and all those things that go into it. So it's it's an exciting time for us. Uh, we, we work all summer. And then August 1st, we're done for the summer, and we just wait until November to see if we get here. So Now, Iowa, does Iowa have the, like, six-man basketball? or Used to, yeah. Used so to, right? I graduated high school in 1990, and sometime between then and, and a little later, they switched over to five-on-five. Five. But six-player basketball is, is interesting, you know. Two dribbles and you have to pass. Two dribbles and anywhere on the floor or just in the um, backcourt? So you are a defined forward or a defined guard. If you're a guard, you don't cross half court and you only play defense. And if you're a forward, you play offense and that's <laughs> it. Yeah. And so it's not uncommon at that time if, if you had, um, you know, a, a solid offensive game, it's not uncommon for a player in that era in women's basketball, girls' basketball, to have, you know, 70, 80 points per game average. I mean, literally. Um, one of our other assistant coaches, her name's Jill, she uh, ended up in the state title game and was one of those players, just unstoppable. Wow. You know, and, and um, it's just fun having her on the team. And then we have another coach as well, his name's RJ. That, um, Boy, the strategy to so that. So, you know, like I said, I've, I've been involved with basketball ever mm -hmm. since I can remember. And the strategy and drawn up plays mm -hmm. and X's and O's and the strategy and the mindset shift that would have to take place. Yeah that game it's a that's a different game so it's Not a three on three half court game with two dribbles to pass yeah that's a so game. so imagine three on three which we all play right and if you get the ball as a defender your job is to get it across half court to pass to your offense to play three and three the other way you're not just going outside three-point line and checking and coming back right you have to get it across half court right. when the ball is scored the referee takes it out of the net whips it up to center court and then the offense takes over so there's no out of bounds like full court press. There's none of that. That's interesting. It's it is a different game. And they don't do it anymore. They no, stick to the no, they stopped doing it. Yeah. So now I think we have five classes of girls basketball in the state of Iowa, all five on five, and the, you know, the smaller schools. And as you get, um, you get bigger, the talent level, the athleticism certainly changes. Right. So and so you grew up in Iowa, mm -hmm. and your background athletically. Uh, you mentioned was college was football. You played yeah, high school. I mean, college high football. I went to high school, a two A school in high school. So there's 70 of us in our grade ish, somewhere in there. Um, so I played football, basketball, and golf. Um, played some baseball, but decided the golf course was more fun. Right. <laughs> so for the summer, I did that. Uh, but yeah, then went to um, play football at a D3 school in Pella, Iowa, named Central College, and um, one of 120 members on the team, mm -hmm. and totally. I don't know, it moved me in a direction that I didn't know until, you know, later in life when you have to start drawing on some of those things, those experiences that you had at, at the college level. And then, you know, those those friends, those lifelong friends that you make on those teams, just amazing. Yeah, yeah. So. Something about athletics and teams and yeah. connection and, uh, you know, and, you know that kind of shared suffering is a phrase that we've used before. <laughs> this shared suffering, suffering yeah. that kind of brings yeah. people together um, mm -hmm. um, and just understanding how teams work. Yeah, there's there's a lot to um, that experience in that it, my my older brother is a year older than me had already gone to that school and I wanted to follow him there. It was only an hour from home. It wasn't any any big deal. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any idea what I was going to study, but I knew I wanted to play football and be with my brother again. And he ran track there, and 
a couple years later, my younger brother showed up. So we had three brothers at school at the same oh, really? time there. Um, and, you know, that, that when, you, when you're on campus and, and you've got 120 guys that are all fighting for the same thing, right. you know, and you have a coach um, by the name of Ron Skipper who has since passed away. You know, he was in his 60s when he was coaching us in 1990-94. And the things that the things that we were able to draw from, you know, every day there was a life lesson. Every day there was a conversation about, about things. And, and it, it really started with things I think are kind of missing today. We had some basic rules on the team. Your hair is about your collar. There's no facial hair. You're taking your hat off when you're inside, when you're eating. You know, you, you open the door for folks. I mean, all mm -hmm. those sorts of rules that are that are just kind of the do-right things. Right. Um, and it was all based on his attitude of that you're a student, you're an athlete, and you're a gentleman in that order. And if you can own up to those three things, you can be part of the team. It wasn't a, a tryout and a cut or anything like that. You're on the team, you want to work hard, you can come out and play. All right, there's something about um, – let me ask you this. I, I love that stuff because I love, I love teams and programs and businesses and whatever it might be that have standards. Yeah. Uh, and they uphold those standards, which kind of we've talked about kind of create your culture and all that. Sure. But let me ask you this. Who up – who enforced those standards more on on those teams, the coaching staff, or the player, or the juniors or seniors? Because <laughs> that because that's, that's, that's a business lesson. So right? I, I think there's I a business yeah, lesson in there. I remember um, specifically as a freshman, um, huddling around as a group of players without coaches there, um, early early in the season, and uh, there was an upperclassman uh, with the last name of Sanger. Anybody listening from Central will know who I'm talking about. Um, and he's basically saying, you know, hey, it's, it's a dry campus. The college is a dry campus. We all know what that means. It's dry unless you get caught a lot of times, right? Yeah. But we held true to it, I think, in season. We just, you know, there wasn't any anything going on that way. Um, and one of the seniors basically said, you know, there's this guy named Kevin. Um, it's not that it won't bother you. It's the fact you said you wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. You made an agreement to be here. And we'll take care of things if you decide to go against that agreement. Right. And that's all you needed to hear when you're a little freshman and you've got this senior looking and, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, there's uh, something. So, again, uh, I, to draw my experiences as a coach, you kind of feel as that head coach or somebody that's on staff when you see things like that happening mm -hmm. where you, you kind of swell up with some pride to it and you're sitting there like we're getting to where we need to be. We're like, the, like when you see people buy in, and you don't have to, you, you could spend four, five, six, seven years trying to beat these standards into people that uh, you're leading and that are on your team. But when you kind of self-monitor or self-enforce mm -hmm. from, from the players or the employees to the new hires or the new recruits or the freshmen or the transfers, this mindset, and I have, we do have a podcast, it was one of our first five, where it was titled, What's Us and What's Not Us? to the senior that is saying, hey, this is a dry campus, that's that's us. Yep. That's who we are, and that's what we stand for. And I actually remember when I was coaching, we had players that would come to us in the office and say, coach, so-and-so's not going to make it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and we would say thank you, we would monitor it, and then we would be like, yeah. Um, so when you get kind of that um, self-enforcement right. from your people yep. on standards, and again, I love the par I love the comparison of sports to business. Mm -hmm. I, I love it because I do think that's a business leadership team at Wells Fargo, at Google, or wherever, mm -hmm. um, where you get people that are all in, 
right. all in on this game. And, and that makes all the difference in the world. So for us, um, and, and again, some people probably heard me speak through this quite often. The four years I was there, we lost five games. We were, we were 36 and five in those four years. And if I tell you that we were an average team for that school. Oh, really? Right. So we were, and I went through for one of my talks, I did some analysis of I took a four year block and every four year chunk, mm -hmm. kind of rolling four years. Right. I think my team, the four years I were there, was there, we ranked number eight all time in all of those four year progressions from the mid 60s on. So Coach Skipper um, jumped into Central in the 60s mm -hmm. and we, my team, was in the midst of years number 31, 32, 33 of consecutive winning seasons. Mm. And so we were an average team. Wow. Right? So you, you look at, go eight years prior to me, and they went to two national championship games, you know, and you go and, and look back at wherever else is there. If any of those senior graduating classes had lost more than five or six games in their career, it was, that was the abnormal part of it. And so we really were brought up, and it plays into a lot of what I think the business is that being average is, is something that, that I'll talk about today is it's your average, right? Don't don't compare my record to somebody else's record, but we're trying to get just a little bit better on our own to make mm. our average better and it made all the difference in the world. And even even at work, right? Um, work's easy, you know. Going into work and doing work is so easy. Um, there are some challenges, sure, but an average day doesn't have to mean it's a ho-hum day. Right, an average day can be something you really excel at, and people will start to look at you and say, "Wow, you're really overachieving." I'm like, no, it's just another day. We, we were brought up through that coaching experience and, and through that team that, you know, if, if you just own up and do the right thing, um, so be it. So, as, as an example, um, film session every day was, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of fun, especially being a wide receiver. And back then, there weren't HD cameras, so film was on the lineman, not right. on the wide receiver. Mm. So I sat through two hours of film every day, never being on the camera. Mm. So if I messed up, oh darn, right? But when you have to sit there and you see one of your buddies on the line taking the wrong step, taking a left foot step instead of a right when the ball is snapped, and the play failing because of that, and the coach flicking it back and forth and back and forth, it sets into your head that, you know, number one, you made an agreement to your buddies you're going to do it right, and secondly, that minor little mishap changed everything for everyone, and that accountability was set in right. so quick. Um, and it's a big deal, and, you know, at work, being accountable for, for what you're going to do is, is a big part of that, and for me, it's just second nature. It's like, uh, it's my job, it's what I'm going to do, it's not a struggle. Right. So. Right, so to get into your story a little bit more, so you played, mm -hmm. were, were you always a geek? Uh, uh, geek just, you and I are very similar, right? I'm in the <laughs> software world yeah, as well. I've yeah. written code for 10 years. I'm slowly writing less code, uh, but I do work with IT teams and things of that yeah. nature. In my heart, I feel like I'm a coach yeah. uh, and probably will always feel that way. Sure. Uh, and, and the podcast is very slanted athletically into sports stories and things right. of that nature. Uh, but you were kind of, are you kind of yeah. that same, same world? What, so what's the ratio geek to jock here? Oh boy, I'm not that <laughs> athletic. I was a role player, right? Um, I'll, I'll put it this way. I went to school there, uh, number one, to be with my brother, secondly, for football, and third, I had to come out of there with a degree of some sort. Um, I ended up leaving with a math degree, mm. a comp sci minor. Mm -hmm. And I think I went with math because it's pretty black and white. The answer is right or it's wrong. There isn't a professor that may or may not like the paper I've written. If the answer is right, it's right. right. And so um, I left scared to death of public speaking. I never wanted to do any of that. Um, 
not that I was a poor reader or poor writer, I just the numbers were easier. Mm-hmm. So I landed a job um, in Des Moines out of college doing database administration. And so everything that I started with was related to SQL and data and, and all those things. And thankfully, because that's a big part of today that's in, in the IT world that um, you can have some serious impact. You know, in this conference, this DevUp conference, I'm, I don't consider myself a developer. I, I don't know .NET, I don't know Java, I don't know um, many of the sessions that they're presenting on, I have mm-hmm. no idea what they're talking about. Right, right. But we get into the data world, and my day-to-day world of creating dashboards and um, telling stories with the information to help an executive make a decision, uh, that's where I sit. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's not so much jock there, right? I mean, you can get an all-conference accolade in high school and go to college and be nobody, so it, it never really was part of who I was. Um, mm-hmm. Prototypical team player. Do my job. We all sell those together, and we go from there. So, right. so you spent. Um, uh, so you, uh, who did you work for when you got out of college, and what's uh, your company and principal financial group in Des Moines? Um, still there. My wife's been there for almost thirty years now, oh really? working okay. there. And I left there to go work for Blue Cross Blue Shield, and then ended up um, working for a consulting firm here out of St. Charles in Quillage, which many of the people there know about. Uh, before then, going to Wells Fargo. So okay. Yep. So you worked there, and you were just working remote up in Iowa. Yeah. And then to get into, I get it had a life-changing moment at some yeah. point. I don't know the full story sure. exactly what happened, but I'm interested. Yeah. At, at some point, your life changed dramatically. Yeah, there was a, there was an event. Uh, so December of 2011, um, it was one of those winters on coming where people are playing golf in January in Iowa because it was so warm. Mm-hmm. You know, it would freeze at night and thaw it to be 50 degrees and back and forth and. When that happens, there's, uh, you know, the top one inch of the ground gets a little slippery. The ground is frozen underneath, and it thaws out and, and whatever. And I bring that up because we, we live on an acreage. Um, we have 10 acres. My my wife grew up with horses, and so the week after we moved into the house, we had a horse with no fence, and mm. that's a life-changing event, by the <laughs> way. Um, and, and so I went out that evening around 5 o'clock to take one of those large hay bales and put it in a, a bale ring for the horses to eat out of just a few chores before my wife came home. It was a Wednesday night. And um, uh, I screwed up. I didn't uh, strap the bale in correctly in the loader, and it fell off the loader and crushed me in the seat of the tractor. And so I was all of maybe 10 car lengths from the house. Um, you know, I wasn't out in the middle of a cornfield or, or whatever. And so you basically I knew right away that um, I couldn't feel my legs. Um, I was conscious the whole time. Ended up uh, waiting about 45 minutes to an hour before somebody found me. I mean, I was that close mm-hmm. to the house, and it's just what it was. Um, ended up with a free helicopter ride to the, the hospital, <laughs> and I uh, uh, woke up with a T6 uh, paralysis, so a complete paraplegic from that point forward. So T6 is like uh, where your xiphoid process is or right at the base of your sternum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from there down, I lost all use of my body. Um, thankfully, you know, I saw my hands my head and heart and all that but it was, it was interesting you know I have and to this day my wife's like it's amazing there was no bruising um, I broke a couple of ribs I broke my t6 vertebrae and my sternum had a little crack in it and you know I didn't have any soft tissue damage aside from my spinal cord inside which thankfully right I mean I didn't have to worry about a, a punctured lung or a spleen or whatever um, so it happened so suddenly there was nothing that could do it so the, the reason I brought the ground up is that um, I had started to move the bale, and the tractor just slowly slid 
um, started to glide on the ground. And we're not talking it was rolling or anything like that, but there was enough of a, a slide to it that I was nervous I was going to slide into this this brush pile that we had. And I turned around to, to see where it was at. And when I turned it around, um, the the loader on the tractor must have kept going up, and I didn't even see it. I was looking backwards, and then the flail came down and, and landed on me. So it's probably good that I didn't notice it because I didn't flinch, didn't do whatever. It just it's what happened, mm-hmm. you know. So you take that experience. Uh, you spend, you know, December 11 or December December 14th, somewhere in there. December 14th, 2011. Um, you go through Christmas and New Year's at a general hospital, um, just a normal hospital in Des Moines trying to figure out what's going to happen and you learn to fight really quick and so my wife um well, yeah uh, yeah not to cut you off no, I, you're I, fine. I apologize yep that's that's you learn to fight really quick mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that's uh, I mean that's an interesting phrase because some people probably choose not to fight yeah right and and, mm-hmm. and and knowing your background a little bit and knowing where this conversation probably will end up with mm-hmm. how successful you've been how you've overcome things when you say you learn to fight really quick, what do you mean? Like, is that something you just ha- had in you, or um, yeah? Because you're talking about maybe like a week or co- two months. Two months after this happens, you go December, January, February, mm-hmm. and you learn to fight real quick. Yeah. Whereas, I might sit there and learn how to quit real quick. So, small community has a lot, you know, and tight family has a lot to it as well. Um, that Wednesday, I was hurt. That following week that Tuesday or whatever the community had already spun up fundraisers mm-hmm. and chili dinners and all this stuff to to move us forward you know as a family and I I, I remember one moment in the hospital shortly after everything happened where it's just me and my wife and you know it was maybe four or five minutes of just right a couple of tears and from that point forward we were moving we were moving forward wow. and, and I think um I've never felt that I was a victim. I've never felt that, why am I being punished? Um, it happened. And, and so the question is, what are you going to do? And, and with the community jumping in, with the family jumping in, um, part of me is like, I can't let them down. They're, they're my team. My job is to do my part. And if they're going to invest all this time and caring into me getting better, then I need to do my part and, and own up to that. And, and it, wasn't, um, it wasn't like, yeah, let's go get me in a wheelchair and let's, let's move. You know, there's certainly a lot of work that went into that. But mentally, it was very quick for me and my family to make the change. Hmm. And then my daughters maybe struggled a little more, and there's still days, I think, where it frustrates them more than, than it bothers me. Right. Um, at our house, it's difficult for them because we don't use the word can't very often. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's always in front of them that – sucking it up is your option right now that's it mm-hmm. you have to move on I'm sorry it hurts a little bit but let's get moving so yeah you learn to fight and, and fight ends up being I don't know if it's the right word or not but you certainly learn to um, accept the challenges and then go in with a healthy feeling that you're going to win no matter what anyway because you have to right, right? and um, there isn't an option now it might take a little longer to, to get there but I think from that next day forward, I, I lost some time in there. I don't. I, I remember landing at the hospital and getting pulled off the helicopter, but I don't remember how much time from that point until you know I was in my room. I don't know if it was 12 hours, four hours, or three days. You know, I, I think maybe you know it was hours. Right. Um, but when when you wake up and and you realize what's going on, it's like 
you're moving right away. There's no time. <coughs> and I kind of call it kind of your recovery time. So there's, there's, there's a part of the talk today in the, in the closing keynote about, you know, today's world, something happens, and the first thing people do is they'll dig their heels in and fight that it's happening. And you lose time when you do that. And it's inevitable. It's already happened. So why are you digging your heels in? It's time to get past that. And then they'll open up social media and tell everybody how bad a day it is. And they will then wait for people to affirm that, yeah, it's a bad day, and they hit the like button. And before they finally decide, okay, I need to move on with things. And you just lost four hours of your day waiting for that. And so compressing that recovery time to, to look at, okay, it happened, and now we got to move on is really important. And it gets back to coaching. One of the things, one of the key tenets that our head coach tells our girls, and it is especially crucial in basketball, is there's always a next. There's only one time in your life there's not a next, and that's when you pass away. And in basketball, you don't have time to stomp a foot or roll your eyes or mm -hmm. or do whatever. The call went against you. You turn around, you run, you get back, and you keep playing. Otherwise, right. you've missed it. And so we will always tell the girls there's always a next. You just ran a sprint. Get on the line. There's a next. Forget how much that hurt. We're going again. And um, it's immediate. And so I really try to approach things that way. I mean, I've had, I've got stories of Social Security Administration wanting uh, all the benefits back they've given me. I've got stories of healthcare deciding that they weren't going to cover me. Um, you know, and you appeal and you win, you know, the two-year fight to get a new wheelchair because they decline it. I mean, I'm not going to wallow around for three weeks saying, woe is me that it didn't work. Where's the appeal form? Let's go. You know, let's keep getting after it. And hmm. Otherwise, you waste time. And I don't want to waste do you time. Um, now, I, I would say that maybe your sport background ha plays a lot in that. Yeah. I think there's, uh, so a friend of mine that uh, comes on the podcast every once in a while corrected me on this, and I appreciated his correction. Um, I keep using the word training. Um, he was like, you train a dog, you develop people. But that development huh. mindset that, yeah. you, that you created through maybe athletics or uh, who impact, like who do you feel? Maybe your parents, maybe your college coach, maybe your high school coach, but there's that mindset. I, I do believe that is developed um, to, I mean, sometimes I'm sure you either got, you have it or you don't. And I don't think I'm done, right? And I, I don't think you ever are, are, are done with it. So my answer is gonna be through a progression of 20 or 30 years of how that happened. You right. know, we, there's four of us kids who grew up. My folks worked their butts off, and we were, you know, I don't understand how we had every scholarship we wanted growing up, but yet my folks seemed like they didn't make very much money. How that happened, I don't know. But as soon as we were able to push the lawnmower, we were pushing the lawnmower. You know, we were out working, and work ethic was a big, big part of it. Um, you know, kids these days don't know what it means to walk beans, mm. you know, or, you know, detasseling corn is one thing. I never had to do that, but to, to work hard was a part of that. And I think for my parents and a hard day of work, um, that's where it started. Um, high school, you know, not so much, but going to college with uh, football coaches is important. And then it continues. After I was hurt, um, the head football coach at the high school said, you got to come help us now. And so I coached football for about five years. And he's a, a gentleman that played in our arch rival school in college, mm -hmm. though I never get to play against him. But he was the guy. He was the All-American linebacker and so on. But having him ask me to come in and, and help coach football was, was a huge part to me turning things around. You know, I was a part of something. I was part of a team again. And hmm. a couple months later, the head co girls coach, basketball coach, asked me, do you want to come help us too? I'm like, absolutely. You know, I'd, I'd love to do that. And I've since I've stopped doing football and doing just basketball with only daughters and stuff because it's a time commitment is what it is. And I think, you know, those teams and having a role in those teams, 
has been very important. And, and as of late, because basketball is what it is, um, I've got a new team now that I've started to work with, or at least they've let me talk to them. They've included me over at the University of Illinois with the wheelchair racing team there. And to be brought in by them and included as a 46-year-old, and they're in their early 20s, and they're competing and racing right. at the top levels in the world, and having access to that and being on that team, you know, in air quotes, is, mm -hmm. is really important to me. So, so you, you mentioned actually earlier, um, uh, just about that, I'm interested in, in, you said that you completed your third marathon this past week? Yeah, so Chicago Marathon. part of that group? Yeah, so Chicago Marathon was on Sunday, a couple of days ago, and that was my third. I did, a, I did uh, Grandma's Marathon in Duluth in June, and then mm -hmm. Chicago last year. So, um, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I consider my team, you know, beyond family and friends, that have been so helpful to be a part of my team. Right. Of, um, you know, uh, my doctors and, and, you know, my friends that are part of my team. But um, my PT in spring of 2016 said, hey, you should go do a half marathon. I was in a wheelchair. And I was actually I was mm -hmm. always in a wheelchair. Um, so that at that time, I had been pushing around the city streets just to get in shape. I had a, an attachment that wasn't a wheelchair racing attachment. I was supposed to have to wear the front wheels, the small wheels off the ground and stuff like that. And I had a big belt stuck in my arm, mm -hmm. which whatever. She said, yeah, you should go do a half marathon. So I pushed my heart first half marathon in June of 2016, and I still had a few things here and there. I had a better health. And the, the support that you got from people as they're running by you, the support you get as, as people running by you is um, – it's pretty invigorating in the race. And then when you're passing them and they're breathing hard, it's kind of fun too because the wheels help, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I went from that and then, so it was June. August, I stalked out a, a gentleman over at the University of Illinois, happened to be the head coach of, of the team over there and happened to be that there a couple of weeks from going to Rio for the Olympics. And I don't know, he, that year they took some 14 athletes, came home with 17 medals and whatever. And, and in the meanwhile of that preparation, he answered an email that I'd sent and basically said, hey, I'd really like to try racing, but I don't want to spend the money on a chair until I know if I can do it. And he said, come on over. Uh, so I invited a stranger over, and that afternoon I came home with a chair. He said, here, try this out. And he sent me home. So seven-hour drive. Never. So, is, so we're talking – the head coach of the team of uh, Illinois now it's, yeah. uh, it's Champaign in so Champaign yeah so you're going so from somewhere in Iowa I'm not sure exactly Des Moines yeah so Des seven hour drive to Champaign wow. um, he brings me into the facility and gives me a couple you know tips and tricks we get to know each other a little bit similar age he's a little bit younger than I am and uh, he said here try this out he sent me home with a chair no questions asked no whatever just let me know how it goes let me know if you need help meanwhile he's packing to go you know down to Argentina so that that's great. I got home and realized real quick that um, and <laughs> talk about up in the game a little bit. It's different than pushing in a regular chair. Um, it continued to where I didn't uh, because it was September, October. It got cold. Come February, he writes me and says, "I need the chair back," and my heart sunk. It's like, ah, oh, it was just getting warm. I'm just going to start getting into it. So I said, "You better be right over." And we drove over the next week, and he sent me home with another chair. He said, "I just need this one back. You can use this one now." And he said, oh, by the way, let's measure you for your own chair. Mm -hmm. 
and he took down all the measurements because they're all custom built to your size. You know, some of the people on the team have, uh, you know, were born with, with defects, and their legs are much smaller than my 39-year-old full-grown leg before I got hurt. And so the size of the cage that you sit in and the chair matters. So we measured, um, and we ordered me uh, my chair. And as I'm leaving, he says, what are you doing in October? I'm like, it's February. I have no idea. He says, let's do Chicago Marathon. I'm like, you're kidding. And so it started from there. Um, and so last summer, um, I spent, you know, the summer getting about 500 miles of training in, thinking I was doing well show up for Chicago Marathon, and I had done my homework. I had stalked YouTube and watched all the video I could watch. I knew all the big names. Um, the night before the race, they had a meeting for all of us wheelchair athletes. Um, and talk about feeling like an imposter. Um, you know, you're looking around, it's like, oh my gosh, that's Marcel, and that's Tatiana, and that's Josh, and that's Pike. And that, I mean, all these names come out, like, they have so many Paralympic medals around their neck. Like, mm -hmm. why am I in this room? And there are 70 of us there, and I didn't know anybody except that coach, Adam. He did one more thing. He invited me to stay for dinner with the team after that meeting. Mm -hmm. And so a year ago this weekend, I met what I consider my team, you know, mm -hmm. a, a bunch of kids, and, and they don't like it when I say that, so they'll listen to this and they'll, they'll make fun. Um, but, you know, they're 20, 22, 23, 25 years old. Um, and they just pulled me in. Any question I have about racing, anything that I'm doing, they send me their workouts. I have a question about what the workout means. And uh, essentially that turned into me going back to Champagne four or five times this year and spending a week in the training facility working out with them. Um, they invited me back for their high school camp, so I helped out with the camp there. And in the end, um, they pushed me to put in over 1,000 miles of training this summer, and this is about 50 to 70 miles a week. And here we are. Chicago and I mean they, they're just they're dear friends I mean it's just amazing they're my kids I mean they're, they're my kids age but it's my team and all because a stranger answered an email and said go for it and you need to speak to and I don't rambling with it but no you know to complete a marathon you're about 10,000 strokes with your arm to, to get through 26 miles you know you sign up for the punishment mm -hmm. you know and it's, it's 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 you have to go in knowing mentally what you're getting yourself into and it sounds like a lot right um, the the best in the world are going to complete that marathon with a three minute 30 second mile pace right and the best runners you know a four minute mile is a really big deal and, and to, to finish a marathon like the record that just broke not too long ago you know right right at two hours well the best wheelchairs in the world are going to defeat an hour and a half i mean they're 30 minutes faster than that so you know, I'm, I'm at a point now where I'm so much a rookie that I'm aiming for a 15-mile-an-hour pace. If I, if I could get, um, you know, under two hours right now is a really good marathon. My best is 153. Um, but, boy, it would be fun to get another 10 minutes off and then, you hmm. know, go from there. Um, not, not, not to be silly, right? I mean, the elite of the elites are who they are, and it's just pretty cool that they include me and they'll talk right. with me and stuff. But it's just fun to, to compete. Yeah, if you will. So, okay. I, I man, there's so, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, sorry. But, uh, no, no, no. There's. I think that's amazing. I think this is yep. amazing. Uh, this is what strikes me about what you just said is one the imp the impact and value and how one person can really change and alter our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, reaching out to somebody and having that person just have a servant heart mm -hmm. uh, 
be willing to say, hey, uh, come here and I'll take care of you essentially. I'll, yeah. I'll do like, what are your goals? How can I help? What can I provide? Um, and I think that's business. I think that's leadership mm-hmm. uh, of the people that we're leading and the companies that we're in charge of or the products. I think all that plays play. I also think uh, for you to take those steps and say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go seven hours. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, that uh, I'm, I'm guessing relies on other people to help you to make those that seven seven. just take a day off from work i drug my dad with me right right so you drug yeah yeah just to make the trip right he's retired he needed something to do yeah and i think there's there what what i think people in our profession uh either don't lend a lot of weight to or don't consider a lot is uh the value of of the team Mm -hmm. and as as simple as that sounds I think there's a lot in there, um, a sense of belonging, feeling connected, being inspired, being accountable, uh, achieving something, becoming great or better than what you were yesterday. Uh, we don't put a whole lot of value in that, or or we don't spend as much time as we need considering the impact that has. Mm-hmm. So when your eyes light up because you're a part of that team, when your teammates are kids, essentially, yeah. right? That's how I would view yes. it. That, that's what I would say yep. about 23. Both years, high so school and also right. the college kids, yep. But uh, not, to, not to tell my own story at all, but I went uh, there. There's an NBA basketball coach that I admired for years named George Carl. He was at one point the head coach of the Seattle Supersonics, yeah. Denver Nuggets, and Sacramento Kings. Sure. He was out of coaching for a while. And when he was out of coaching, I uh, met him, was able to go out to lunch with him, essentially spent a week with him, drove him around Detroit, all this sort of stuff. And I went out, and he was not in coaching, and it was the first time he was not leading or or participating in a team. And we were at an old diner in Rochester Hills, Michigan, and his eyes welled up. He was about to just start sobbing. And he said, George, this is the first time in my life I am not a part of a team, and it's really hard for me. And there's so much that is wrapped up in being a part of a team. And that always stuck with me because um, it is belonging and connecting. So you found that. How, how, how have you either how, – how has that, con- I guess, continued to impact you and how is that accountability and that drive? And, and, and you've probably already said that. But how do you translate that into the teams you lead or the place you work or how you yeah. see other teams? Because uh, that's, that's impactful. That's and, it, and it's different. So – with the high school girls, right. they have seen me. Some of them may not remember me walking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's at least seven years this December. Um, they they get a full dose of my general approach to being in a wheelchair. There will be jokes. I will make fun of myself. I'll say something to see if they'll laugh because they're nervous. Like, wait, he just said that. Can I laugh about that? And and I want them to laugh. But it is so much of it is that I believe that they leave being so comfortable around somebody that's just got a little bit of a different approach to to getting around. You know, the 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 wheelchair is ever present for them in practice. They they get it. They know they have to make sure they pass the ball to me a certain way, which you would think that would be a easy skill in basketball, right? Just make a good pass. Um, you know, th- that that type of interaction is one thing. I, I go to work. And with Wells being such a big company, um, many people I work with have no idea I'm in a wheelchair. Mm. 
no idea. I'm on the phone for two years on a project with them and we'll meet in person and it's tough. They're like, they don't know what to say. Mm. You know, and, and I just go with it. You know, it, it's, it, let's just talk about it. Let's make it happen. The team in Illinois is interesting because they are all also in some way, shape or form, um, have, have a handicap that they're, they're fighting with or working through. And, you know, some were, were born with a defect. Some had injuries like I had. And in the end, we're all in wheelchairs at some point or with a prosthetic or whatever. And it's, it's, it's amazing how in that conversation, let me back up. When, when, when you talk about, when you, when you engage with people that are new to the idea of the wheelchair, the conversation is about the wheelchair. Mm. When I'm in, in Illinois and working with those friends, we're talking about, um, should I take grad school? Should I, should I take a year off or should I go right into grad school? That's a conversation I had with one of those kids, you know, a couple weeks ago. And it's not about the wheelchair because we're already all in that state. And it gets to be very real in terms of back to life. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that they're asking me, old guy, for advice that way with, you know, three daughters their same age is, is pretty flattering. Uh, at the same time, I think there's, uh, you know, some perspective they're looking for there that, just might be another voice besides their parents pushing them or their coach pushing them and so on. So it's, it's a different conversation. And the leadership there, I really look up to them in terms of, you know, shoot your balance in school and a workout, you know, an elite athlete, like top five in the world athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you pull that off? Whereas I'm trying to fight 40 hours of work and, and life and then also get the training in. So uh, there's some motivating factors there for me, but at the same time, the conversation is different, totally different. How much time do you spend training? 50 to 70 miles a week, so six days a week for sure. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll get a workout in. Um, I built a roller, so just like any bicycle in the wintertime would have a roller. I, I, uh, it's a facility in Illinois. They have a whole bunch of them, so I modeled one after that and just built one. I had some people help me. Uh, so I'll get on that roller, and um, you know, a 45-minute workout is a 9 to 10-mile workout. Pretty easy on the roller. And so there'll be a couple of days of that, a couple of days at the track. Um, and then in Iowa, we have the fortunate um, set of bike trails that are old railroad tracks that have been paved over. And so they're really nice trails and they're safe for me. I can actually get on them without traffic going by. Um, but on a Saturday, it's usually a 20 mile plus push, you know, and then during the week, there's days where you go 15, other days you only go eight or nine, other days you're on the track doing a different kind of workout. But it's six days a week of getting it in. So one of the themes uh, from this this week when uh, we were talking with Richard yesterday and something I've probably hit on the past couple episodes, uh, and, and I, I feel like the, the message that I continue to hear is really for me. It's kind of one of those things like you, you spend your week doing a bunch of things that you shouldn't be doing, and then you go to church and the preacher's preaching at you. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> man, that's exactly – he is talking to me or he was watching me all week. Yep. But it's – you know, of it's wanting it's wanting a better life. It's wanting to get out of our cubicles. It's wanting to be more connected, accomplish mm -hmm. more, reach our goals, uh, waking up every day inspired and be passionate about something. But I always fall short on action and uh, taking the first step and not thinking too much and not planning too much and not taking too many notes, but actually getting out and doing and doing and doing. Mm -hmm. That's not a problem for you. No. Um was right i think that's one of the things i learned 
I've had to learn patience, like really learn patience. Um, when when you come out of a rehab hospital um, like that, I mean, we we get spit out, amped up on the opiates. I mean, the oxycontin and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very real thing, and it, it's it's a deal where I can totally get the epidemic, right? That, that's out there. That's in the news. Um, when you when you come out of that environment and you're somewhat numb because of that, um, I made a decision pretty quick that I was angry at the time. I was an angry person. I was very impatient, and I believe it had a lot to do with the medication that they put us on. And after a couple months being home, there was an event where I spilled something in the house, and I was very angry about it, so I picked it up and I threw it down on the floor again and made it worse. And I think something clicked because my kids were around mm-hmm. when that happened, and I said, I got to stop. And so I just quit taking them I'd rather hurt and know what needed fixed than have it be numb anymore and so the patience behind waiting for somebody to reach something for me or or just the simple stuff that way um, I'm pretty efficient on my own but there are things that I, I just can't get to it um, you have to wait you, you learn that and so day to day specifically with the working out it, it becomes very easy to talk myself out of my workout so, and we've all done that. Like yeah. y- you wake up, it's like, gosh, I know I'm supposed to go 12 miles tonight. I wonder if the weather's going to be okay because I might just not be able to get it in. And, oh, work's going to run late. And I find that preparing for the marathon has been a huge change for me. Um, there aren't wheelchair marathon preparation schedules, but you can go find one for runners everywhere. Here's what you should run every day, and you should have this recovery day and run – you know, run these intervals and splits and whatever. And so I've adapted the workouts that have been given to me from the coach and the friends in Illinois into one of those running workouts. So as I'm preparing for Boston next year, in January, I will be starting back up through a progression leading up to April. And I will have that schedule built. And every day for those 12 weeks or whatever it is, I will know what I'm doing. And I find at least with the week even, if you if you sit down at sunny and you plan out the week, it's really hard to talk yourself out of your workout when that plan is there. Yeah. If you wake up every day randomly, you know what, today I think I might do a roller or today I might go to the track. Mm-hmm. And the other part with, with running and the wheelchair side of it is going to the track is hard. And it's hard because, number one, I don't like going in circles. That's why I golfed. I didn't want to run track. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a circle, right? Um, and... Aside from the surface being something that has a lot of drag to it, which you might think doesn't, but it does, every lap you pass your car. <laughs> every lap, it's time to go home. Is it time to go home yet? Is it time to go home yet? And there's a real mental challenge there for me. I have to find a way next year in my progression into this sport with embracing being at the track as being healthy for me. It will build my strength. It will make me a better racer. Um, but when you're on the bike trail and you leave your car behind five miles, mm-hmm. five miles back you got to go back right and so it, it, it is that way right and I think having and then it may sound just too elementary it's not that I have a plan it's that I'm not going to let myself down on that plan I'm not going to talk myself out of it if I have it written down so it makes a difference well, so I, I, I'm torn between two questions here we'll get to them both um, <laughs> you've got to be really impactful to these people you're leading is what I'm thinking um, everything you're saying but really what you've overcome how you train how you've uh, asked for help and received it that's the thing that's a 
a source of contention in my household with my children. Um, uh, you know, There's if you don't know something, you know, it's that, that mindset. My kid, one of my children, uh, one of my kids, is he does not like asking for help when he when he struggles with something academic, mm -hmm. and th that's a hard thing to uh, ask for help. And uh, we had a leader at Wells. Um, one of the things that I do with data is also deal with something called a strategy map and, and KPI development, metric development, right? And because there's math and there's data and everything behind that. But the true value of the strategy map is it shows a cause and effect relationship between the KPIs. So if you do not train your people, your project is going to fall behind. That project is going to fall behind. Your customer will be impacted and your financials will be impacted. So it's this whole what are you measuring and why you're measuring it. Um, one of the leaders um, was challenged by his boss to put together a plan or whatever and and we caught word of it and a buddy and I just asked him can we help you and we you know had a quick half hour and as we're leaving he says thank you nobody ever asks if I need help wow. and as a leader you know that, that that's pretty impactful for us you know and it wasn't about you know promotion or whatever we had a skill we saw he had a need and why why look at an org chart and say well I can't talk to him if he's above me that's that's not it at all mm -hmm. but it was the other way around he's like nobody ever asks if I need help you know, it's one thing for me to ask for, but right. you know, when's the last time you asked two or three up from you, can I help you? Right. Yeah, you said something on the way up here, actually, uh, uh, when we were coming up to the room or recording, and you said uh, <coughs> something along these lines, so correct me on, on exactly how you said it, but it was essentially uh, managing up, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what you're saying now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, training the managers above you on either how to manage or communicate or lead the people below them or how you individually like to be led or mm -hmm. communicated to. Um, do you do a lot of like? Yeah, it, it's maybe maybe not maybe not with a purpose in mind other than it just happens, right? And mm -hmm. it's very much more for me not, not to give advice to him about how to manage the team. It's, it's more of I've never relied on my manager, my boss, my workplace to drive my career. I felt that's up to me. Mm. Um, if I have a goal, it's my job to manage my manager to help me get there. I mean, certainly I'll share with him, and that goal may not have anything to do with what he wants out of it. Like, um, and I shared with him, I'm speaking a keynote down here. I shared with him, I'm going to Chicago, I'm doing all these things. And as long as my work is done, we make that happen. And so he understands that I have those related and unrelated things that I'm chasing because I've communicated those with him. It's more so than just um, – hey, I've got a, a concert for my kid that I need you to go to, right? It, there's, you know, basketball season will change my work schedule at 3 o'clock every day and I'm at the gym. And so I need to get into my work done. And basically he, and, and I usually have my manager help me clear the runway so I get the stuff done that I need to get done. Uh, and that's really a big part of it. Just com keep communicating with him. Mm -hmm. um, let him know where I'm going, what I need to have done. And, yeah, I might not get to that till 9 o'clock tonight, but – I'll get there, right? right? And so it's, it's, I don't know if training the manager or managing the manager or managing up, it's it's all part of that. And it really comes just down to communicating. You know, and if, if I don't advocate for myself and let uh, my manager know that, hey, I'm really interested in this and here's how I think it's applicable to us, um, I think I'm going to miss out. If I wait for my manager to say, hey, you should go to this class, you should go to this training, you should go to whatever, uh, not so good. So it, it, it relates to this, right? So one of the things that people are here at this conference it's a technology conference right how many of these people do you think would go to toastmasters or how many do you think would go to a class in their um you know maybe maybe their hr offers up a business writing class or a public speaking class or anything um 
luckily at Wells, we have a lot of those classes we can just sign up for. You know, a class called Crucial Conversations where you basically learn how to have those hard discussions with coworkers or family or whoever. Um, you know, the public speaking is one. There's um, all uh, an entire catalog of things related to professional development. But as, as developers, we go to conferences to get better at development. And you kind of wonder, you know, you think about the resumes of all the people that are going to be here. How similar are all those resumes? Mm. And so one of the questions, I don't know if I'll bring it out in the talk, but um, if I'm a hiring manager, why am I going to pick you? Because all these resumes are the same. And I would argue it's those other skills, right? So I get that you can code, but can you sell that to a CFO? Mm -hmm. Can you get up in front and make that sale? Not, not from a sales pitch perspective, but if you have that conversation. And I don't think we spend enough time focusing on that part of our career. Because we think if we just can code, we can code, then we've got it. So it's, it's kind of fun. I think people probably are going to read my profile before this keynote and say, why are we bringing this database guy up on stage to talk today? And they have no idea what's about to hit them because we're not talking about technology, right. you know, and, and we'll talk about that. You know, one of the things that um, Buddy and I were talking about is that there's these permission to play the game type things. For you to get a jersey, you must have these things, right? You have to show up on time. You have to speak with respect with people. You have to do all these things that if you don't do those, you're not on the team. And so you think about a, a job requisition or a job title. And everything is you must know this code and this language and this whatever, but there's always these required and desired pieces to that, that rep or like integrity, honesty, work ethic, all those things, right? And who has never applied for the job because they're maybe not very good at one of those? You ignore them, right? You just assume you have those. But to be honest, there's many people that don't get out of bed very well. They're not self-starters, and so I think those are the pieces that start to, to set us apart, right. more so than what you can code and what you can't code. Right. So as much as I take notes, I, I should have bookmarked with the, the last. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot it, that to unpack there as well. Yeah. Um, and that whole idea of getting out of your cubicle. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're spot on. All these resumes of the seven, eight, nine hundred people here. Um, I, I had a, uh, a lady uh, named Edie Varley on last week with the podcast. and. I really liked how she framed this, that we talk so much about soft skills, soft skills, and she was like, they're not soft skills, they're smart skills, and people need to quit saying, like, these are skills that people need to develop, because uh, it is, it's being able to sit in that boardroom like we're in now, and being able to articulate something to a CFO, a CTO mm -hmm. on a product, a technology stack, a direction uh, that we should go uh, for, the, for the company, and, and it's hard to develop those But it, it's talking to that parent that wonders why their kid isn't playing as much. Right, it's right. it's those that entire progression of the, the dynamic of coaching and the dynamic of just talking with people and with family and church and, and all that. You know, it's, um, right. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's a, there's a lot there, like you said. Yeah, there's a lot there. So, well, uh, so one thing, with your story and with your passion and drive and, uh, you know, this w uh, this uh, one percent improvement is how I kind of took what you said earlier offline of just getting a little bit better and just irritated do you get with the with with complacency and lack of goals and drive with the people like I, I don't mean this disparagingly uh, but man you've overcome a lot and when I sit there and complain about my garbage and you're sitting there going man I'm in a wheelchair 
So we're like, what are you complaining about? What problems do you have that you can't overcome? Does that just drive you nuts? I mean, uh, how do you handle um, that? It, for me, it starts, I'll get to that answer, but it starts really back at, in college football again in that, you know, this coach huddled us around one day after practice and um, basically said, you know, it's okay to have a bad play. And I equate that to a bad day. And, and, and if you just have the guts to evaluate whether it was good or bad, step one, can you can you ask yourself, first of all, was that good or bad? And then the next one's going to happen. And evaluate again. Um, basically said, you, know, you can have a bad play. That's great as long as you recognize that. And you can have another one that's bad to get that. But after that, somewhere you have to stop that chain. You, you have to step up for yourself and say, no more. I'm not going to have another one of those. And when you think play to play to play in, in football as a game is, is one thing, right? He equated that to, you know, day to day. So I truly believe that no two days are going to be the same. One is either better or worse than the day before. And it's up to you to figure that out. You have to have the guts to look, right? You have to decide, you know what, wow, yesterday was horrible, you know. And it, it might be horrible because you didn't see eye to eye with your kid that morning. And it might be just that one thing. The rest of the day might have been awesome. But in your head you're evaluating, gosh, I really wish I would have done that better or different. And so if we, if we look at that at a day-to-day scenario, it's difficult for me when I see folks that are in a rut. And, and, and it's hard because my paralysis is so visible. And we were talking about this before. Um, they may be going through something that I have no idea what they're fighting. And it may be a battle, you know, an unseen battle that I don't dare judge. Where I have a problem is um, other people that are in a wheelchair that I knew from rehab one of my best friends, his name's Jim, um, and, and we talk about this. It's hard for me because, well, White, you're the same as me. You're in a wheelchair, but his injury is totally different from mine. He, he also broke his spinal cord in a, in a BMX race when he was in his late 30s. We met at the rehab hospital, and I'll call him up. We talk almost every day. I call him, I'm like, what are you doing? I'm in bed. Dude, it's 1 o'clock. What are you doing in bed? Eh, I'm having a bad day, and, and it, it clicks. Like I have to remember that just because I got out of bed, you know, yesterday was rough for me, and it's, it's a little frustrating that way. I think it equates to some of the IT world as well. You know, the, the older you get, the, the more you've seen, and the ability uh, or the opportunity to collaborate with people that are at the same level with where you want to go is, is, is a challenge sometimes. And I'm not saying I know it all. Um, like I said, this conference, there's things going on here that I have no idea what they're about. But if, if I want to have a conversation about where we're going to go with a solution in a certain direction, I have to find that person that's already right. thought about some of that. And that's a challenge sometimes, even even you know in the cube or out of the cube. It, um, you, you find those people and you hold on to them as your team, right? Across the org chart at Wells Fargo, I know the people that I can call that will take a step back and say, oh, that's interesting, let's talk through that, as opposed to me having to tell them every step of the way through it. So. Complacency, um, I, I have more of a challenge with that with my family and my kids. <laughs> um, you know, my youngest is a freshman in high school, and like every kid, has every opportunity in front of her. And mm -hmm. I'm waiting for the day when she learns what it means to sweat and work, because when she figures that out, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, not that there's anything wrong with it now, but she's at that age where – She's going to figure it out pretty soon. And, and every kid progresses, right? You might have some kids do it earlier, some do it later. But when she's ready, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited for that. So, And right. I'm not saying it's going to be anything on the court or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
but she's already such an incredible kid that it's just going to be really cool when she says, you know what, I'm going to start taking names and yeah. get after it. So yeah. it, it's fun. Just kind of a parent, uh, a parenting antidote. You know, when, the, when your kids, when that light switch goes on, the things they're passionate about and they go to another level for mm-hmm. you as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you said something also earlier before we started recording about you would, and again, I may not get this right, but you said uh, what I heard you say was you would rather uh, not be the leader in charge of maybe like 20, 30 people, but rather be one of those people uh, that is kind of being led. And and you had a kind of a, a good story or a good kind of twist on that that mm-hmm. I really hadn't heard before. Sure. I felt maybe something along the lines, like you can have a bigger impact as being kind of one of those people being led. Yeah, I had, I, the really oppor- like I had the opportunity before I was injured to lead a team of about 15 to 20 like-minded folks in the consulting firm we were in. I, I led our business intelligence practice um, and reported up to our president, Daryl, and there's a few, a few of the guys here that um, we worked together at that capacity and, and led different practices within the organization. And, you know, the organization really determined what leadership I could provide. And in that case, and in that situation, you know, you're in charge of marketing, sales, development, architecture, delivery, hiring, firing, I mean, all of that. Um, in the organization I'm in now with 200 plus thousand people in it, in an IT department with 30, 40,000 people in it, um, I feel that my skills as a developer, a communicator, a storyteller with data, um, an ability to network and relate with the business first as opposed to focusing on technology, I think I have a lot more value and can show a lot more for the company being that individual contributor and being able to enable thousands of people with the solutions I create as opposed to leading a team of 15 or 20 and trying to tell them, hey, we need to go create this. I mean, it's literally that. I mean, some of the, the dashboards that we create when when you're thinking about building a report for five or ten people is one thing, but when I know my audience is a thousand people hitting it, um, and if I get that story right, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. you know. And, and if I can deliver that solution in a way that they don't care about the technology, then I win because mm-hmm. it's not about the technology. I want, I want to make sure uh, to honor your time. We're ab- about an hour. Sure. And it'd probably take me 10 minutes to unwrap this. You're and, fine. And things like this. But w- maybe one last question about uh, really kind of, I guess, more about the maybe the kids that you're leading and the teams that you coach. Um, what would you want, th- what would you like to leave them with? When, when they are, when, the, when these ladies are, you know, 30, you know, 40 years old and they look back at what has impacted them and they think of you. What would you want them to say you brought to them? I, I want them to believe and prove every day in their heart that they're unstoppable. And um, it, it, it's just that simple. You know, it, it, and that may be generalizing too much, but I think kids these days, if, if they work hard, there's, there's less and less competition for them out there in the world. And I think those that work hard and have that belief that they're going to get through anything they're going to end up on top sooner than they probably realize. Um, I bring, I hope, to to the teams um, a general attitude and approach that you're not going to get me down. And even even at work, when you know somebody's starting to to think things are rough, I'm like, I got out of bed today with a miniature gymnastics move, you know, to get into my chair. I, I already won, you know, that. that 
was as hard as it's going to get for me today. And so if, if I can get the kids to believe, you know, it's not going to go your way, but if you come out of it every time being unstoppable and in your mind, nothing's going to keep you down, mm-hmm. I think we win. And if I can give them that mental toughness, then that's big. Uh, well, what a great model to have in you um, because everything you've said today and what people have said about you prior to us recording is um, that, that, uh, that would be the word I would use is, uh, yeah, you've got this, uh, uh, you are unstoppable in what you've done. And so I, I, to maybe wrap this up a little bit, um, I do want to acknowledge you. Uh, when I started this podcast, um, again, it was kind of, it was for selfish reasons. I, w- I wanted to learn. I wanted to take some notes. I wanted to be able to uh, uh, be h- kind of held accountable to some prep and things of that nature. And what I have found with this podcast is I have met some life-changing people that I would never ever would have met or had a conversation with had I not personally started this podcast. Um, This has been impactful for me. And I hope everybody that's listening is really inspired. Uh, And and Edie uh, Edie Barley, who was on earlier in the week, had a great phrase. She said something along the lines of to uh, inspire to aspire to, uh, something along those lines. So um, you have inspired me in an hour and five minutes. And to aspire to be, uh, to take more action, to be unstoppable. Um, you know, I think that you should stop doing database work and go on the road and start giving these talks. Well, I, <laughs> that's that's what I think you should I, do. And I appreciate the opportunity. I think, um, you know, when Jeff asked, hey, do you want to do the keynote? And I said, I'd love to. And I've, I've done a, a couple of smaller group ones. And, you know, being in front of three or 400 people giving an IT talk is one thing. Um, and I'm excited for today. But he says, I just need you to motivate them. I said, that's all you're going to give me? He says, yeah, that, that's all I'm going to tell you. Just mm-hmm. get on stage and motivate them. And um, I might do a wheelie on stage. We'll yeah. see, just to, <laughs> to show off a little bit. But I, I would love to get into more of it. I think um, um, part of what, what I think for me makes it real is um, I, I can't tell you the medical studies behind why and X percent of people behave and do this certain way. You know, there's no PhD speak to it. Um, I've written some things. I haven't published anything. Um, mm-hmm. Just me. And, and I, th- I think the more real I can make that for an audience, yeah. the better off it is. Yeah. Um, I'm a developer. I'm a father. I'm a school board member. I'm a coach. Um, yeah. And I like to go fast in my chair. Uh. <laughs> so. Well, um, I said this on an earlier podcast, and I, I believe this. Um, is that I think we get so closed-minded to what's going on in the world that we don't see the blessings or what I have phrased as miracles that we, s- that we have every day, that I think we get blinded by that stuff and we just get in a routine with life that we don't see it. So kind of the mindset I had many years ago was to open my eyes to the great things that are happening every day to me. That way I'm prepared to see them and I'm expecting to see them. And so kind of what I used to do is I would – night when I was kind of ending my day would be to write down three great things that happened that day and I would kind of label those like my three miracles of the day and then every day I would look forward to finding those opportunities that were life-changing for me and I I, I, I set that background to say it is uh, 11 19 on Wednesday and without question this this has filled one of those miracles of my day appreciate it hour with you. Thank so you. like without question um, so the, la- the last question, though, and I ask this of all my guests, and I, uh, we just connected today. Uh, I quickly looked at your LinkedIn. I did not have enough time to read your bio. 
Um, the question I typically ask is, um, you're my age, I'm 45, I think you said you were 46. At 56, what's your LinkedIn bio say? <laughs> Retired. <laughs> <laughs> um, at 56, um, hopefully it progresses away from a lot of the tech speak that it has now. Um, everything in my LinkedIn bio is, is really based on the endorsements and other things that people have provided as opposed to me going in and creating it like a resume. Uh, in fact, I haven't spent a lot of time on the profile there um, uh, for no other reason. I just, I just haven't. Right. Um, I think I think things like LinkedIn and some of those those bios get created to try to match a resume search sometimes and are used primarily for trying to get a you know get some sort of employment that way but I think if I could make it more personable and speak to the broader impact of, of what's there um, mm -hmm. it'd be pretty pretty cool I really like people's LinkedIn profiles that aren't their job title you know it's it's a you know a lot of the the folks here it's like what are you well I'm yeah I'm a developer but mm -hmm. it's a different title it, it's something more creative in terms of, of what they are like I, you know maybe I'm a data storyteller and th maybe that's enough right but it, in 10 years from now, um, I would love to uh, have had some more success racing. I'd love to um, speak to what we've done, I think, not just with my kids, but the other kids that we've been coaching. Um, and I think the IT stuff's just going to fade away, I think, from a leadership perspective. And as you get older, that's just going to happen. And there'll be less about the minutia of doing the data work and maybe the outcomes of that right so is there anything you haven't crushed yet that you're looking to crush in the next number of years what's uh, you mentioned boston briefly mm -hmm. you qualify for that yeah. for the same way that other people would qualify for boston? yeah so the athletes with disabilities have different time standards like anybody else would right so if you're a runner you have to meet a certain standard based on your age right um i'm of an age called old so i'm in a <laughs> i'm in a different group but I have to complete a marathon in two hours and 15 minutes to qualify for Boston. And I didn't know that going into last year, Chicago, and I finished at 216. Mm. And it's like, but I never had that goal. Um, and to be honest, I don't know if I really had that goal this spring when I finished at 153 up in, in Duluth. So I totally blew out the time. Um, the kids that I train with have to be under two hours because mm. they're younger, right? And so I always make fun of them that, you know, I'm. I qualified because, you know, I'm a, my age is an advantage. So I'm really looking forward to that. I don't think there's a, you know, it's not like I'm looking to qualify for other marathons or whatever. Um, they're just going to happen. And I think um, I've been told I'm still young that way. My shoulders are still young when it comes to racing, which makes sense. Some of these people have been racing for years and years and years. I'm only two years in. I think I've got a lot of, of things I can offer yet there. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of healthy jawing that goes on with the young kids mm -hmm. it's like you know shoot you're only 20 whatever and i'm beating you what's the deal you know and i remember specifically a really good friend named steven went by me in the race a couple times i was having trouble with it being so wet and rainy just the, the racing spot and he goes by me yelling come on old man i'm like nice got a boy but you know it's good for me to get that from them and then i turn around and i beat him so it's all right <laughs> That's great. So to honor your time, one, I appreciate you coming down. Um, this is uh, this has been one of the best conversations I've had uh, that I can remember. Like I, I appreciate really, it. Like I'm really inspired uh, 
really inspired by you, and I know that you're going to crush it in, uh, uh, at Keynote today. I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to that. So I, I really appreciate your time. Really, when uh, Jeff and Scott said I should be visiting with you, that would be great on the podcast for it. Uh, they were right on that. So, um, so everybody listening, we're we're doing the uh, DevOps conference here in St. Charles. Uh, there's a few more people that we may be getting on. I appreciate you listening. Uh, actually, let me finish with this real quick. How can people track you down? What's the best way for them to reach you or get involved? If there are people, uh, is there an association with the racing that you do that if people are listening that are that are in a wheelchair that are inspired by what you've done? Are, are you involved in any charities along those lines? Yeah, I think I think the easiest way for all of those questions is just get me on LinkedIn. Okay. And I think it's, you know, you can search for my name. It's F as in Frank, U-R-N-E-S-S, -S, mm -hmm. and first name's Dean. Um, you'll find me out there. You'll see what's there. And I think just send me a message. Uh, accept a friend, and uh, if you have those questions, put them out there. Um, charity perspective, I usually try to stay close to the spinal cord associations mm -hmm. when I do that. Um, but yeah, any of the questions about racing and, and some of those things, I'm a rookie as well. So asking me, to your point, is a selfish thing. If I have to look it up, that's good for me. Yeah. So um, by all means, I don't have all the answers, but love people reaching out. And if if it's a story that you think resonates, you know, with your teams or whatever, uh, I'm game. I love talking about it and meeting with people. So, right. so last question, promise. Iowa or Iowa State? Iowa State. Iowa State. Yeah. Okay. And so. Uh, for some reason, I, uh, I have a number of friends in, in this area that are all Iowa State people. So I've met a bunch Without of Without hesitation. Iowa. Yeah? Yeah. So, uh, and I forget who won this year. I think Iowa did. Yeah, yeah they did. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. I'm not anti-Iowa, but that day I am. That day, yeah? Yeah. Okay. What so. they have done at Iowa with this children's hospital is amazing. It is absolutely yes. amazing. Anyways, uh, so I, I listen, I listen, appreciate everybody listening, supporting the podcast, uh, the conversations we're having, uh, I hope are impacting you as much as they have impacted me uh, substantially. So I, again, Dean, really appreciate your time in the hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes and look forward to your keynote today and uh, appreciate your time, man. Loved it. Thank you. All right. Thank you.